Tom Woods Show, episode 2177. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. I'm giving away three free courses from my Liberty Classroom. One of them is ex-Marxist Michael Rechtenwald teaching you about critical theory so you can understand leftism and fight it better, as well as our course on how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America and the history of the conservative and libertarian movements. Check it out at threefreecourses.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. Very glad to be joined by our old friend Germinal G. Van today. Germinal emigrated to the United States from the Ivory Coast in 2010, and he is the author of, if you can believe it, 24 books, the 24th of which we will be discussing today, Poverty, Inequality, and Economic Policy. Germinal, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be back, indeed. All right, this is starting to get ridiculous at this point. This is really (laughs) ridiculous, because I think I've had you on. Now, I'm happy to have a guest come back multiple times. That's no problem. Very common around here. But it's not that common for them to come back with a new book every five minutes. You know, that is, that's the unusual <laughs> thing here. So, <laughs> but on the other hand, as a guy who has imposed upon himself this crazy schedule of producing episodes, you are a godsend, my friend. You know, because I, already, I always know, well, every 90 days or so, I can rely on old Germinal to, to stop by and talk about what he's been up to. So this is another great topic. You know, this is another one that we talk about a lot, people who have the views that you and I do, because it's, One of the criticisms of the free market, people think it leads to poverty and that if we had intervention that drove resources in particular directions, that that would be superior to a market economy. So it's very important for us to address this. So, Mm -hmm. geez, I mean, my gosh, 24 books. After a while, I I don't know if you run out of ideas or if you are constantly, you are overwhelmed if you have one of these minds that just can't turn off and you're bombarded with ideas. But let me just ask you this. With this particular title, what were you looking to achieve? What I was looking to achieve was to explain to the average reader the purpose of economic policy. Because when you look at economic policies since they've been implemented, government always implement economic policies in order to punish rather than allowing people. So I wanted to explain that the role of government in implementing economic policy is to have laws that will allow the ordinary person to have access to economic resources rather than implementing laws that will punish those who are doing well and try to give to those who are not doing well for X, Y, Z reasons. Okay. so. There's a lot of material here. I'm picking out some items that I found interesting. And I think, I think I may have found an ever so slight contradiction in your text. Okay. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know what? Let's start with that. That'll be fun. Okay. (laughs) And you tell me, maybe you are able to reconcile these things. Sure. On the one hand, you're quite fond of Alfred Marshall, the economist. Mm -hmm. And you talk about what the way he viewed the issue of poverty. Mm -hmm. And he seems to, I'm not sure if this is true, but I think Brian Kaplan may Mm -hmm. be working on a book about the poor Mm -hmm. and how they get poor because the conventional wisdom is that poverty is entirely beyond anyone's control and it's just bad luck and it has nothing to do with decisions you make and he just will not have that at all. Of course, Mm -hmm. in some cases, it is because of those things. So likewise, I got the sense that Marshall 
held something like that view based on what you were saying, that it depends on the decisions people make with particular resources. But Uh then later in the book, you seem to be criticizing the government for making a lot of the welfare payments in kind rather than in cash. And you say, well, it seems like the government doesn't trust the poor to make decisions with their cash, so it makes the decisions for them. But if what Marshall is saying about the poor is right, I guess we shouldn't trust them. Maybe the government is right to be paying in kind. But the point of Marshall, though, is that every decision, like, we should look at individuals, right? So individuals are the first unit of social consciousness. So when we want to make a decision, rather than looking at an aggregate view, taking everyone as one, you know, one big unit, you look at every single person, like the Austrians do, like, you know, we have different set of values, preferences, and choices. So Marshall believed that if we focus on the individual to start with, when we, let's say, redistribute the wealth, if instead we give money instead of kinds to individuals, they will be able to make decisions more rationally. Milton Friedman argued about this before. He was saying that if we want to believe in a form of like redistributing the wealth, but without a welfare state, he believed that it's better that it's better we give money to the poor, but there's no welfare state. That will force the poor to basically make rational decisions. They will have to allocate their money in a more efficient way than relying on entitlement programs. So Alfred Marshall believed that there was something to be done about poverty, but how to deal with it is where the whole issue is. It's like, I believe that Alfred Marshall would have agreed with the fact that it would be better to give money to the poor rather than kinds because giving money to the poor will enable the poor to make decisions for themselves because Every single person, again, has a set of choices, preferences, and values. So based on the money you have, now you're going to utilize that money that will reflect your choice, your preference, and your values. So I think Alfred Marshall would have been in favor of giving money to the poor rather than kind. You make a distinction in the book that's fairly common, which is the distinction between equality of opportunity and equality of results. Now, I'm sure you can give a quick overview about what the distinction between those things is. Yes, of course. So equality of opportunity, of course, as it says that everyone has the same opportunity. But of course, it has not been the case as we wish it would. But when we talk about equality of opportunity, it means that everyone is equal before the law. So it is the role of government to have a set of laws that everyone has protected under. When you look at, for instance, the history of the United States, we know that, for instance, Blacks were not always protected by the rule of law, although in the Constitution it was written that way, but that's not the topic of the day. And I ran a regression in the book testing the correlation between the rule of law in almost every country in the world and global opportunities. And we see that the higher is the rule of law, the higher becomes global opportunity. So basically, people have access to more opportunities. So the law is what enables individuals to have access to opportunities because everyone is protected. Equality of opportunity does not deal with how people are meant to manage their resources. This is up to each individual. Equality of opportunity only deals with people being protected under the rule of law 
and then they can access economic resources and deal with whatever they want to deal with the resources they acquire. But equality of outcome is coercion by nature because we're not the same. We're not naturally equal. You have people who are naturally endowed with some set of qualities that others don't have. But if we want to equalize the outcome for everyone, then we have to dispossess those who have those endowments and give it to those who don't have it. But even if you give it to those who don't have it, it doesn't mean that it will equalize output at the end of the day because two people can have the same resources. They will still not generate the same output because people use different strategies to create value. So again, it comes down to the uniqueness of the individual. So that's why, in my opinion, I believe that equality of outcome, no matter how much we tend to promote it, it will never lead to the results that we're aiming for because you have to impose coercion on everyone. You have to apply unjust policies. And the funny part to me is that we are basically blaming those who have endowments as like, why are you better than me? Well, I mean, (laughs) we're individuals. Some people are good at things and others are not. And for example, like I have the opportunity to play basketball, but it looks like I don't have the skills to do it. So I'm not going to go into into the NBA. There's no law saying that I cannot play basketball. I have the opportunity to do it. I just can't do it because I don't have the skills. And this is even what I want to pinpoint, right? When we talk about poverty and you were talking about Brian Kaplan writing a book on it. In fact, the problem of poverty is not the insufficiency of income. It's a problem of skill set. The reason why people are poor, I would say most of them, of course, no one chooses the family in which they were born. Like you, we may be born in a poor family, but we have the capacity and the ability to change our economic condition. And one of the ways to do that is to improve our skill set. Right now, we are technically in a recession. Not even technically, we are in a recession. Although we are in a recession, if you go on LinkedIn, you go on ZipRecruiter, you go on Indeed and all these job platforms, there are jobs willing to pay people $100,000 or more. But why everyone cannot get those jobs? Because people don't have the skills. So you see, there are opportunities. But if you don't have the skills to take that opportunity, well, you're not going to get it. So to me, the cure to poverty is production, as Hazlitt said. It's production, it's the improvement of skill set. I want to say one more thing about equality of opportunity, because it's a phrase that you and I know what it means, but that Mm -hmm. can be used by others in, let's say, mischievous ways. They can Mm -hmm. say, well, obviously somebody coming from a poor background, Mm -hmm. you know, the parents didn't go to college or something, or, well, mine didn't go to college, at least at the beginning, and I turned out all right. But, you know, (laughs) how could they have the same quote-unquote opportunity as somebody who's, you know, who has everything handed to them and grows up in a wealthy neighborhood and this and that? And so they say, in order to give people equality of opportunity, we need to transfer wealth because then they can have true equality of opportunity. But what we mean by equality of opportunity, there's a distinction between two ways of thinking about it. And they parallel the idea of negative and positive rights. There's a negative way of looking at it and a positive way of looking at it. Like, for example, if we say that we have the right to life, that doesn't mean I have the right to a kidney dialysis machine if I should get sick. Because how could I have such a right? There were no kidney dialysis machines 100 years ago. So therefore, there can't be a 
write to them, you know, or on a desert island, how would I exercise my right to a kidney dialysis machine? Shaking my fist vainly at the universe? So there is no such right. The right to life really means a right not to be killed in the same way that equality of opportunity doesn't mean that you have a right to have a lot of resources handed to you so that you can go exercise your equality of opportunity. It means that you have a right not to be impeded in whatever you might want to do. That's what it means. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the importance of the rule of law comes into play, because the rule of law is what is here to make sure that you're not impeded legally, at least, you know, to have access to whatever you want to do. Let's talk about inequality, because this is another thing that people raise as a problem with market economies. They say that they bring about inequality. Some people have vast fortunes and other people are barely scraping by. So we should wage war on inequality. Is there something wrong with thinking that way? Okay, what specifically politicians of left-wing tendencies have successfully done is to impose a moral significance on inequality. So when you say that you do not believe in equality, you are the villain, you are the bad guy. So the minute morality is in the middle of this concept, it basically clouds everything. And that's what left-wing politicians successfully did. The problem is that people refuse to admit that inequality is part of the human condition. Even myself, I am not equal to myself. I may be skilled in some stuff, and I am not skilled at all in other stuff. Because for me to be equal to myself, I have to be skilled like basically in everything. And it's impossible. So if you're not equal to yourself, how do you expect to be equal to others? And yet, in society, we tend to think that equality is the right way to go about, to do things and to make society better. There's no such way. Society is better because of inequality, because everyone is bringing to the table what they know best. If everyone were equal, the world would not be a better place at all. Creativity is what engines inequality because creativity is unique. It's within you. It's part of you. And you are unique to yourself. There is only one Tom Woods. There's no 10,000 Tom Woods, maybe name in the United States, but not. there's not many Tom Woods who are historians the way you are. And you are who you are for a reason. So inequality is what promotes human advancement. If there were 10,000 Henry Ford, well, I don't think we would have any cars made by the Ford industry. So inequality is important. But for political reasons, for semantics, it is better to preach equality because those, basically the poor, the low-income people, they're the ones who believe that, okay, if the government is here and try to make things right, I will be better off. And for thousands of years, since government exists, they always try to implement egalitarian policies, and it has always failed in the long run. In the short run, it may produce some results, but we all know those results are short-term. So in the long run, the pork always come back to, to the first point, to the initial point. And it's important for people to understand that inequality is not a bad thing. It is part of life. It is what makes who we are as individuals. Let's talk about social mobility because you have a chapter on that. And I know that, like me, 
you've been very influenced by Thomas Sowell. Mm -hmm. And he has some material on this where he says that one of the mistakes people make when trying to measure social mobility is they'll look at the lowest quintile of income earners and they'll say the lowest quintile earns such and such percent of the national product or something like that. And then 20 years later, they'll go back and say, and now they're even worse off or now they're this. But what Sowell's point is, they're not the same people 20 years later. Exactly. The vast bulk of them have left the bottom 20% and are now in other quintiles. So to just use a percentage instead of real people and tracing them out throughout their lives leaves the impression of total stagnation, but that's not the case. Now, the thing is, it's much harder to do studies where you actually trace the same group of people over the course of 20 years, which is why almost nobody does it. Almost nobody. But when it has been done, it's been found that, now again, off the top of my head, I know I've done an episode on this where I talked about Soul's work. I don't know what the percentages are off the top of my head, but a lot of them have been moved up into other quintiles. So what can we say about social mobility in terms of, what kind of institutional arrangements are most likely to bring it about? So in order for social mobility to be something that the average person can see from its own eyes, we need deregulation. For example, someone who is a beautician or an esthetician, you know, wants to study his little gig. But if you want to become a beautician, there are a lot of like fees and qualifications exam you have to take just to be that. But those fees you have to pay and those exams you have to take benefit the state, but not you. So why not removing those obstacles and let people start with and then see how it goes? So there are too many regulations. So it basically impedes economic freedom. To have socioeconomic mobility, you need economic freedom because it's economic freedom that enables people to move up in the social ladder. And as you say, yes, like the same people who started in the bottom quantile are not the same who stayed there 20 years later. That's why wherever we work, we have that word we use to get promoted called experience. (laughs) We have experience for a reason. You usually do not stay at the same position at the job you are forever. You usually stay there for maybe two years, then you get promoted based on your performance. Or if you think that for whatever reason your boss has been unjust to you, you can quit and then apply somewhere else when update your resume. But the point is that things are not stagnated. Things are not static. We move upwards. So experience is part of why we have social mobility because people get more experience. They improve their skills. As they improve their skills, they get better pay. It's common sense. But again, politicians don't use common sense because think about this. If politicians use common sense to explain to the ordinary person how things work, the ordinary person will realize that he doesn't need a politician to, to get things done. And now the politician will be out of work. He'll be unemployed. He has to collect unemployment because the politician, basically his whole job is to get votes, to stay in office. And to stay in office, you have to make sure that people believe that they have no way to improve their lives unless they rely on you. So that's what it is. Otherwise, our social mobility is simply about economic freedom. If you're able to deregulate the economy, make the bottom quintile having access to resources by lowering those fees and regulations, people will move faster in the social ladder. In fact, I'm looking right now at a chart you have illustrating a connection between socioeconomic mobility and economic freedom. 
So this is all in here. You have a chapter, and I don't remember which one it is, but you go through three different proposals that have existed and been implemented in various places with the intent of fighting poverty or minimizing inequality. And I think the first one is just flat out income transfers, but the other two I remember for sure are nationalization of industry and land reform. Yep. So I want to get to those in a minute. I forget who it is, and this is making me crazy. Maybe it's Rothbard, but I'm, I'm not really sure who. I can't remember who it is. But ever since I heard it, I thought, you're right, I can't ever use that term again. When we say redistribution of wealth, mm-hmm. right away we're kind of falling into a trap because that suggests that there was a previous distribution, distribution. of wealth. Yep. You know, But that's the wrong way to think about how wealth is created. There was a series of exchanges and this was the outcome, but there was no person with a big hat who went around <laughs> giving people things, you know? So we're not redistributing wealth, we're distributing wealth. But anyway, it's a, that's just a nitpicky distinction. Let's skip ahead though to the land reform question because that's something that most Americans don't know because there hasn't been radical land reform in the US. Mm-hmm. But there are, I think, did you use the example of Zimbabwe mm-hmm. with land reform? Can you talk about that? What was the aim of land reform? at least the stated aim, and what were the results? Sure. So land reform is one of the major methods of fiscal policy in developing countries because developing countries are mainly agricultural. In the U.S., maybe if we go early at the time of the founders, then maybe you can see some land reform when it comes to wealth distribution because at the time, the U.S. was an agricultural society. But it's no longer the case now. But when you look at most African countries, They are now transitioning, but for the most part, they're still agricultural societies. So land is one of the main source of wealth. So when we look at the case of Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe initially, which was called Rhodesia, had black Rhodesians and white Rhodesians, so the same as South Africa. And the white were the minority that were ruling the country. And they had basically the monopoly of all type of resources, specifically land. So Mugabe saw that as an economic injustice. Okay, fair enough. His intention is pure. He believed that if once he gets political power, he will correct that injustice and he will redistribute the wealth equitably, basically transferring from white, rich, Rhodesian farmers to black, poor, Rhodesian farmers. So his intention was genuine, but again, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Once he became the prime minister of Zimbabwe, then the president of Zimbabwe, and he started transferring, taking the land from rich white Zimbabweans and transferring to blacks, output started to decline. Now the question is why? You take the land, you give it to them, and normally we were supposed to clap, like, oh, great job, you know, you transfer physical wealth. They're supposed to be rich. But it wasn't the case. And the reason is because Mugabe did not invest in human capital. He thought that simply transferring the land, taking it from whites without due process and giving it to blacks will immediately and suddenly improve the economic and social conditions of black Zimbabweans. But black Zimbabweans lack the technical knowledge to know how to manage land. And that's where it's crucial. When we transfer wealth to you, there is a technical knowledge you must have. It depends on the wealth being transferred to you, of course. So there's a sort of knowledge you must have in order to maintain the value of the wealth being transferred to you. Otherwise, that wealth is going to lose its value. And I even talk about 
voluntary distribution of wealth, especially families, like when you got the vendor bills, the dad gives the, the wealth to his kids and everything. But why the vendor bill went broke? Simply because the descendant did not have the technical knowledge required to manage the wealth being transferred to them. So if Mugabe, for example, created some programs to train black farmers, that would have maybe helped to some extent. But of course, you know, programs created by the government, we know how they end up. But in this case, I think it would have been better than nothing. But he didn't even do that. He just unjustly, without due process, took the land from whites and gave it to blacks. And in doing so, as I said, blacks didn't have the technical knowledge required to manage land. So what happens is that agricultural output started to decline. Political corruption started to increase because in this whole process, those who benefited were the political class. And what is interesting to understand about the involuntary distribution of income or wealth is that when it's involuntary, there are usually three parties. So you have the provider, the state, and the recipient. The state is the one determining the parameters and condition of the transfer. So because of the one determining how the transfer will take place, they're the one benefiting from it overall. The provider has no choice. He has to give whatever he owned. The recipient doesn't have the technical knowledge required to manage whatever is given to him. So they both lose it. <laughs> so the wealth being transferred loses its value. But those who, who uh, determine the parameters and condition of the transfer are the ones benefiting from it. And this is what you saw with Zimbabwe. Mugabe became a very rich man. The political elite became pretty much wealthy. The same happened in, in Uganda with Idi Amin Dada. Same thing. He came, nationalized everything, took the land from the Indians, kicked them out, gave it to the local Ugandans, and the economy collapsed. So it's a process that has been done in pretty much every country that tries socialistic policies, especially when they were agricultural, and it never worked because they don't train the recipients before completing that transfer. Hey, everybody, let's take a minute for me to give you some very, very valuable advice. This is advice that is going to score you a lot of points with your spouse or a significant other. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. That person you love is going to be so impressed by your creativity and thoughtfulness. And you don't even have to say, I got the idea from Woods. I'm just giving this to you. You can run with it. You can act like it was your idea. That's fine. Whatever promotes happiness and happy relationships in the world is fine with me. And of course, what I'm talking about is the wonderful Happily Date Box, which I've been receiving for nearly three years now. Every month you get an amazing box filled with interesting, fun activities that you can do with your significant other. It's a way to have a date night in. You'll get a music playlist, maybe a little project to work on, games to play, questions that provoke deep and meaningful conversations, intimate moments that bring the two of you together. They're just wonderful. You're just going to love them. And when you say, hey, I subscribed us to this Happily Date Box service, you're just going to be looked at with a loving gaze. You're going to have that loving gaze into your eyes. Like, ah, I knew I was right choosing you. Okay? You want to get that gaze? You can get that at tomwoods.com slash date. Not to mention, if you go to tomwoods.com slash date, you get 50% off your first date. So what possible reason would you have? What, do you not like having a loving gaze in your eyes? Come on. So head over to tomwoods.com slash date. Get 50% off your first date. 
enjoy time together, and you are welcome. Well, land reform was, I don't remember exactly when, but in its heyday, it was a very fashionable policy to recommend, Yeah, you know, among people on the left in the developing world. But equally, if not more fashionable, was the idea of nationalization of various industries. Mm-hmm. And now, again, this is another policy where in the U.S. we don't have much experience with that. Mm-hmm. So, thank God. Yeah, right, exactly. So what can we say about the results there? Again, remembering that this is a book about poverty and inequality. Are these things actually helping people is the no, question. No, they're not. They're not. I mean, okay, so every country has some degree of nationalization, of course. But you see, like, there's some countries like Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, and many African countries, especially at the post-independence era, that went completely socialist and they nationalized at the very least 75% of the economies. But when you look at the data, the output declined in every of these countries. At first, it always starts well. You see, I always say that socialist policies are like Chinese products. They're like counterfeit products. You buy them, they work fine at first, for the first two, three months, and after that, they become garbage. And it's the same thing. But the problem with nationalization is that it's even worse than just land reform. Land reform is just one part. Nationalization is you basically nationalizing an entire sector of the economy and you're doing it without due process. With the case of Mugabe, he did it without due process, but he could have done with, you know, within the legal framework, but he didn't. But that was a special case. But nationalization generally there's no due process. You come, you say, okay, whatever companies that are part of this industry, we're going to nationalize all of them. It's for the good of the country. It's to reflect the national interest. But when the state now manages those resources and then the management becomes mismanagement, the state mismanages those resources because the bureaucrats don't own them personally. So something that you don't own personally, you're not going to give good care of it. You're like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. So they mismanage them, but because they mismanage them, now the repercussions are not just limited to to the state itself. It affects everyone in society. And that's a problem. When you look at Chavez policies in Venezuela, he nationalized everything. We all know that Venezuela was pretty much the third power in South America after Brazil and Argentina. And then after Chavez came to power, at first, everything went fine. Like he nationalized everything. Things were, you know, quote unquote, free free healthcare, free education, free this, free that. But it was a matter of time before things start running out. And he based his entire policies on oil reserves. But eventually, oil reserves started to finish. Why? Because oil is a finite resource. Something that is finite and ends eventually. And that's when things start going south for Venezuela. They've been mismanaging the resources that that they have instead of, you know, letting people managing the resources the way they see fit. Nationalization never improved the poorest condition instead. At first, sure, it works for everyone at first, for the first couple of years. But after that, it always goes south because things start running out. What do you recommend then? So that's what I could imagine somebody saying. All right, so you have a lot of criticisms of the way we've been going about it. So, all right. Mr. Smarty Pants, what do you think the best thing to do is about poverty or inequality? Is to invest in human capital. 
because the cure to poverty is production, and production is the application of skills. It's that simple. It's the application of skills. So if you invest in human capital, you invest in people's education and training, they will have a better chance to avoid poverty in the next two years or something. Even in my previous book, the one on Black culture and generational poverty, I gave an example of how poverty is, in fact, a matter of skill set. So I took the example of two Black girls, right? Mary and Larissa. So these two Black girls were both 22 years old. And uh, one, so Mary studied physics and mechanical engineering, and Larissa studied philosophy and African-American studies. Just by their choice, you you can already tell who is going to start making more money than the other, right? So they both, you know, like had work experience, you know, internship during the year, and they both under government loans for the college education. So they graduate. Mary now goes, she got a job at Lockheed Martin. She started as a uh, entry-level engineering analyst, making 70K at 22 years old. Although the average wage in America is about 40K, but now it might be a little more now, but in general, it's about 40K. And Larissa, on the other hand, who studied philosophy and African-American studies, doesn't have a job. So she has to work at Starbucks, you know, to make ends meet. So, you know, every six months, Larissa is changing jobs because, well no health insurance, nothing, and she has to pay her loans back to the government. Two years later now, Mary got promoted. So she moved from 70,000 to 85,000. She's 24 years old. She's making more money than most people. And now Larissa, she worked for nonprofit after two years and she's making, you know, the average wage 40K. But Larissa now gets tired of, you know, like struggling and fighting hard to make ends meet. So she decides to go on a boot camp and learning how to code. So she decides to do programming to become a software engineer. So she does the thing for like three to six months. And then she goes back on the labor market and she gets hired by a consulting firm. And now the consulting firm say, okay, well, we like your resume and everything. You did a boot camp, so we're going to pay you 70K a year. So we see that Larissa now moved from 40K to 70K a year. This is a jump of $30,000. As for someone who makes even in the U.S., especially let's assume that she's single and everything, this is not bad. Someone who makes 70K a year and is like single, no you know, extra charges, is definitely middle class because the average household income in America is 67000 So Larissa now became middle class. How she, did she do it? By improving her skill set. Simple as that. If she didn't do the boot camp part, she would have struggle going, you know, jobs and being unsustainable financially. So the point is to say that it's all about improving one skill set. Once you're able to improve your skill set, you cannot be poor because people are willing to pay you according to the value you will bring to total output. That's how wealth is actually distributed in this more like rudimentary aspect. That's how wealth is distributed. You are paid according to the value you bring to total output. So to me, that is equal. That's a true equal wealth distribution. People should be paid according to the value they bring to total output. So what does that mean from a policy standpoint? From a policy standpoint, it means that we should deregulate markets. We should let corporations or businesses decide how they want to run their gig. Simple as that. 
And on top of that, it's not even, you see, it's funny, like, even in the book, I took the case of France, right? So French people, they're complaining a lot about having a lower purchasing power. They say, oh, yeah, the purchasing power is always one of France's main themes during, like, the election cycle. So people, when they get hired, they have, like, a very high gross income, but then the net income is low, and they complain about it. But people tend to forget that the employer in the private sector does not determine people's net income. They only determine your gross income based on your experience. They even ask you, hey, like, how much do you expect in compensation? (laughs) You give your price and they see based on how much the firm makes if they can afford you. So you give your price, they say, okay, well, we're going to give you, I don't know, like 60,000 euros. But then the only entity that has the power to determine net income is the state through what? Through taxation. Because based on your income, there is a percentage of taxation that is affiliated to that income. So if you make, I don't know, 60,000, and then in France, let's say like people who make 60,000 and above, they are charged like 30%. So from 60,000, if we do the math, you're going to have, I don't know, like 17 or 18,000 a year of net income. So you see the big difference. So it's not the private sector that determines people's net income, it's the state. So it is important to deregulate, to cut taxes, to deregulate markets so that people will have access to economic resources. Because if businesses and corporations have more money, then they will pay people more. And if they pay people more and taxes are reduced, then people have a higher purchasing power when it comes to the disposable income. It's pure common sense. And yet people think that it's by implementing more regulations, more punitive policies, that things are going to be better for those who actually need to have a better economic condition. And this is not true. Let me ask you one more thing before we wrap up. And this is a biographical question. Mm -hmm. You came to the U.S. in 2010. Mm -hmm. How much had you written by that point? From 2010 to now? Well, I mean, like, before 2010, had you been publishing books in Ivory Coast? No. In fact, in Ivory Coast, I started writing and I could never finish. Really? Yeah. When I was like 17, no, I went on like 15, 16, I started writing. And I would start and then I would stop. And my mom is someone who hates people who don't go through. She cannot stand that. So she was like, if you start something, you got to go through it. You got to finish it. So when well, I came you, in the you showed her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I came in the US, I started writing again and I couldn't. I remember in 2012, I tried to write about foreign politics. I started writing and it was actually in French and I couldn't finish it. And then when I decided, I was like, okay, in 2018, I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book and I'm gonna go through it. I'm gonna finish this whole thing. So every day I was writing for nine hours for three, three to four months, every single day. I was doing that. <laughs> so, but, and that's- but, but now you have a full-time job. How do you manage all this? I'm just curious from a, the standpoint of productivity and routines, right? how it gets done. So the thing is that when I started writing, I was working part-time then. So there were days where I was completely off and there were days when I was working just half the day. So my free time, I was using that to maximize my intellectual output. 
And I came to a point where now, like, I don't have to write for many hours and I can still, you know, like, write a lot of pages in just two or three hours. So now that I'm working full time, I finish work at what, like five, six, it depends on the project and how intense the project is. And I spend time with my wife. Once she comes from home, like we watch TV and everything. Once she goes to bed, so she goes to bed around 8.39. So from nine to midnight, I write. So in three hours, I can write a solid five, between five and 10 pages. Okay. Yeah. So for someone who is writing a book, if you write every day for three hours, five to 10 pages, imagine by the end of the month. (laughs) Yeah. I guess the thing really is, if you can be consistent with it, even if you're not producing five to 10 pages a day, mm-hmm. even if you do a page a day, yeah, you know, if you just made that part of your routine and you uh-huh. just did it, you know, you can write a book length manuscript that would be 200 manuscript pages. It would be a short book, but it wouldn't be unheard of. Mm-hmm. And that would be what? Not even seven months. Yep. Of just every day, one page. Yep. Instead of thinking, I have to do X number of pages every single day, just make it. And, you know, another thing you could do is start a blog and each page is like a blog post. Yep. And so you feel like you're producing something every day, something finite, something the public can see. There are a lot of ways of doing it. I was just wondering about your routine because I know there are, just because of some of the activities I've been doing lately, I've been interacting with people, not so much to teach them history or stuff, mm-hmm. but rather to talk about things like, how do I get things done? Yeah. What's my morning routine? Yeah. And people are curious to know that about people who are really productive. Like Eric July, for example, with his really successful comic book company. Yeah. He's a guy who he's juggling a lot. He's in a band. He has a podcast. He's on The Blaze. He does yeah. the comic book thing. He does gaming. He works out, if not every day, then an awful lot. And yet he doesn't seem rushed. He doesn't seem irritable because he has so much going on. I'd really like to ask him, yeah. how does he manage that? So... If there's one thing I can say is that sometimes like the difficulty with people is how to become consistent because once, you know, like once the consistency engine is on, then you're good. You're pretty much stable. Even if there are some days you may not write, once you start again, like it's there. And I always tell people, like especially for aspiring writers, I say always try to write a page a day or even 500 words a day. Give yourself a quota that you want to fill. A page or 500 words, it depends on what you're writing, but do that every single day. Or even just tell yourself, oh, I just want to write every day for an hour. And that's how I was when I started writing. I was like, I have to write every single day. And to me, it was more like, I am not done until I'm done with that chapter. I will not stop until I'm done with that chapter. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, that's a good idea. And then we'll we'll wrap up here, but I I really do like to shoot the breeze about stuff like this. That's a good idea to say, I'll write for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Because maybe on a particular day, you're really hitting a big block. Yeah. And so instead you're just, but you put in your time. And I like when it comes to goal setting, to set goals that are within my reach. So instead of saying, I want to lose 50 pounds, which I wouldn't, I would waste away if I lost 50 pounds, but just as an example. (laughs) instead of saying, I want to lose 50 pounds, instead, I'm going to say, I'm going to go to the gym X number of days a week and I'm going to eat such and such. Those things are within my control. Or likewise, I'm going to build my mailing list up to a quarter million people. I have no control over whether other people subscribe to my newsletter or not. But what I can do is say, well, I'm going to create three different 
content pieces this year that I'll give away in exchange for people's email addresses. That's within my control. So likewise, sitting down in front of the computer, that's within my control. How much I produce in front of the computer, well, that can depend on a number of factors from day to day. So I like goals that don't make you frustrated with yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Good. All right. This is, I, I like talking about this stuff just as much as the other stuff. So the book we've been discussing, folks, I will link to it, of course, on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 2177. By the way, that's something that I produced a lot of. Not as many books as you, but 2,177 podcast episodes. Ain't nothing to shake a stick at. The book is Poverty, Inequality, and Economic Policy by our guest, Germinal Van. I will say one thing. You know, you were just saying about, you say to yourself, I am not going to get up until I finish this chapter. This reminds me of, this was a long time ago, but I wrote a book on, I gave a free market perspective on Catholic social teaching. And I think it's my most creative book because the argument in there is entirely original. Nobody had made it before. And now ever since the book came out, everybody makes this argument. That's great. That's what I wanted. I wanted to change the conversation and I succeeded. But I remember I was dreading the section on usury and interest rates because that is so dull and awful. Yeah, it is. Just terrible. Nobody wants to write about this. And so the whole rest of the book was done. So I had no choice but to go back to whatever, (laughs) chapter three, whatever, and just hammer that thing out. And I said to myself, all right, look, this is the one thing standing between me and victory. I am not getting up until this section is done. And it was done at 7.15 in the morning. (laughs) I was up all night, miserably banging out that stupid thing. But I I will say something funny. I took one of my daughters to New York City uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had a great Mm -hmm. time. We saw... Because I I didn't go I hadn't gone because of all the COVID stuff and Broadway was shut down or the masks or whatever that's all been lifted so we went up there and while she and her friend were seeing Hamilton I went to see the Tina Turner musical because it was going to be <laughs> closing down in a couple yeah I'm not as intellectual as as I give the impression <laughs> on the show <laughs> I chose Tina Turner over Alexander Hamilton because I I love her and the show was was shutting down in two weeks it would have been my last chance to see it right. and the reason I bring this up is that that book called The Church and the Market. What I used to do before we had streaming music services, you know, we had physical CDs. Yeah. And before I had like a five CD changer, I'd have a thing with one CD in it. And so when I would write, I wouldn't want to get up. So I would just have the same CD play over and over and over. Right. <laughs> so I played, I don't know what the name of her greatest hits CD was at the time. It might be simply the best or whatever. But that book, the soundtrack to that book was Tina Turner's greatest hits. And so I had to go see it. And then as I was sitting there, I was thinking, this does remind me of that stupid chapter on usury and interest rates. <laughs> I wrote The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. I had Steely Dan's Two Against Nature album on. They won a Grammy for that. And so that was the soundtrack for that. And then another one of my books, I had Lionel Richie's greatest hits on. So I mean, for all my talk about heavy metal and progressive music, when I sit down to write, I just like easy listening. Yes, yeah, same. I just like stuff that's on the radio. Same, Yeah. Anyway, Definitely. all right. <laughs> so you and I have to have dinner. We got a double date or something so that we can just talk about all this stuff because I, <laughs> I just realized, you know, I'm still recording here. <laughs> there's still, People are still listening to this. Oh, there's one thing I wanted to say. I, I didn't know if you were going to ask, but I'm going to say it anyway. So Please do. I, I, I started working on my new project. And oh, of course you have. What is it? Of course, yeah. I mean, what's new? But it won't come out for a while. And the reason why is because... I don't want to say this is my magnum opus. I think I'm too young to say that yet, but it's that kind of book I'm working on. So you may may want to ask 
what the title is, and uh, let me give it to you. I may want to ask, so let's go ahead and ask. What's the title? So basically, it's called A History of Wealth Distribution in the United States from Colonial Times to Modern Era. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, look, no, if you don't won't say it, I'll say it. That's your magnum opus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a pretty big project. I already started working on Chapter 1. It's, it's pretty long. So, yeah, it's about, you know, the history of wealth distribution in the U.S. since, you know, like the founding fathers and et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, that's fantastic. Yeah. Now, that's a contribution. Well, remember, I know you're not an Austrian, but Rothbard's book, Man, Economy, and State, came out when he was 36, and he'd been working on it for well over four years. Yeah. You're 32, right? Yep. So he was working on his magnum opus when he was your age. So there's nothing. It may seem pretentious to say that, but it's just because, you know, you're just more productive than a lot of people. That's, yeah, that's, that's you know, that's yeah, what's going no, on. There's one question I want to ask you. What is the magnum opus of Friedrich Hayek? You know, that's a really good question because after the 1940s, he really turned his attention more to social theory. I mean, he yeah, did write- Yeah, social theory, political philosophy and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he does have that collection, The Tiger by the Tail on Inflation, which mm-hmm. I think is from the 1970s. But he'd gotten into a lot of other stuff, like the Constitution of Liberty is not, you know, purely an economic work. Yeah. Obviously, his Law, Legislation, and Liberty trilogy is not really economics at all. Yeah. Really. So his, what would his magnum opus be? I mean, like, even his work in economics- like prices and production. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. It looks like this is his biggest book in pure economic analysis. But yet, the funny thing is, I am told this by, I think, Walter Block, who saw Milton Friedman at maybe a Liberty Fund event, mm-hmm. and he was talking to him about Hayek, and Friedman said, his economics is unreadable. He says, have you actually, he said, are you telling me you can understand what he's, word he's saying in prices and production? <laughs> I mean, look, if Milton Friedman has trouble getting through it, right? right? So, So that's why I think when most people say, I love Hayek, they mean they love the road to serfdom. And, yeah, yeah. And then later, but you know, What's that book he wrote when he was like 88 or something? Uh, Fatal Conceit. Yeah, yeah, The Fatal Conceit. Fatal Conceit. Yeah, yeah, people like those books. But I wouldn't say people take a lot of pleasure in the books that he actually won the Nobel Prize for, but they they were obviously important. But it's kind of like reading The General Theory by Keynes. Like, why are you making me do this? (laughs) Yeah, so I, I don't know that there is a really good answer, but that was the way I would at least approach the question. Yeah. All right. So I will let you go have your dinner. And thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, thank and, you and, and much, let me Tom. remind everybody, the book, once again, Poverty, Inequality, and Economic Policy, linked to tomwoods.com slash 2177. We're not going to hear from Germinal again for at least three or four more weeks because he's working on his <laughs> magazine. So I'm kidding. You. I'm kidding. You. No, that's not fair. We'll, 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 we will wait patiently for this great project. Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I hope to see some of you this October, that is 2022, in Phoenix, October 6th through the 8th at the Mises Institute Supporters Summit. I'll be speaking there alongside some pretty heavy hitters, and it's going to be a wonderful event. So I hope if you're in the area or if you're the traveling sort, that you'll make it over there and I'll have a chance to meet you. So the details for that you can find at the Mises Institute's website, M-I-S-E-S, Mises Institute website, mises.org slash events and just look for the Supporters Summit in October. The Mises Institute celebrates 40 years this year. So they're commemorating those 40 years at this year's Supporters Summit. So again, I hope you can join us for that, and I'll see you all again next week. 
Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.